0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. Welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. This week we are going to look into... The world of researching refugees in Malaysia, and joining us to do that is Aslam Abdul Jalil. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You are, I guess, an independent researcher. You've completed your master's, focusing on the right to work for refugees. I believe that you're very, very, I think, well suited to talk about this topic. So we're happy to have you here. Uh, thank you. So, okay, let's first of all get to know you a little bit better. I'm quite acquainted with your family, which I find very interesting as a topic in itself because. What I gather is you have a past background at some point, maybe not active anymore. But somehow, the 10 of you, the 10 siblings altogether, right? Many of you have become really progressive activists. Like Ali Abdul Jalil is a, you know, as we know, is an anarchist now in Sweden. (laughs) Anas Abdul Jalil, openly a Marxist, very active, helping, associating with party socialist Malaysia. And then you are, of course, working on refugees. So as is the usual routine in night school, we'd like to know our guests a little bit more. So tell us a little bit about This interesting trajectory from being, I guess, having an upbringing from a religious setting to now being concerned with progressive issues. How did that happen?
0: Well, thank you. I'm not really sure whether we are from a progressive family. I mean, we try to fight for the betterment. So, if that's progressive, that's good. I mean, we don't necessarily need to label ourselves mm-hmm. as progressives. So, yeah, I mean, we grew up in different places, actually, because my parents actually moved to different states. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to live in Kelantan, so I used to grow up there as well. And we actually attended ceramah pass mm-hmm. and, you know, kuliah by past members, Nick Aziz, for example. Mm-hmm. But over the years, you know, I think for everyone as well, I mean, over the years, I mean, you change your political opinion, but mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. I think what matters is, you know, you fight for betterment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that really matters instead of, you know, you want to be on one side yeah. or the other side. Yeah.
1: Or, or being, like, ideologically dogmatic, right? Yeah, that true. There's only
0: one way to do things, right? But
1: I think based on... What I know of you, if I mean, there's a lot of diverse opinions in that context. So, how did you get interested in refugees, right? Because, of course, we can be interested in so many different topics, climate change or economic inequality. But it seems to me you've really paid attention to
0: the refugee issue in Malaysia. So, how did that curiosity and interest develop? Oh, Actually, when I was in Kelantan, when I was a kid, so I saw, you know, some kids, they were selling stuff on the bus. So, they came up to the bus and, you know, sold stuff. And I knew they were not Malaysians, mm. but I didn't know who they were. And, you know, after some... Well, when I was in Australia, actually, so I furthered my studies in Australia as an undergraduate student. So, it's a big issue in Australia about refugee issue. And then in 2011, there was like Malaysia-Australia refugee swap deal. Mm. So, technically, Australia would send uh, 800 asylum seekers to Malaysia to be processed. And in return, Australia would receive 4,000 refugees from Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So, at that time, you know, I wondered like why Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. And only after that, I discovered, ah, there were so many refugees in Malaysia and I didn't know about it. So, and then I started to get active in Australia, grassroots movement in fighting for refugee rights. Mm -hmm. So, after I came back, so I actually promised myself to help the refugees in Malaysia. Because in Australia, I mean, there are issues as well, but at least over there, they have a proper system. But Mm -hmm. in Malaysia, everything is not formal. I mean, Mm -hmm. they need to survive by themselves. So, I think it's important to focus on them. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start on that point then. How does Malaysia
1: stand out in terms of this issue in relation to other countries in the region? Because we keep hearing about that, right? Yep. Malaysia seems to be mentioned a lot when we talk about refugees, not just Rohingyas, but more broadly. Yep. So paint a picture for us in terms of the context.
0: Oh, okay, well, Malaysia is not a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 1967 Protocol. So, this means that Malaysia does not recognize you know, refugee status and therefore, these refugees are considered as illegal migrants. Mm-hmm. So, who refugees are? Basically, refugees are those people who actually outside of their own countries because fleeing of persecution because of their racial or religious backgrounds and political opinion and other things. So, they actually seek asylum first. So, once it's proven that they are fleeing from persecution, Mm -hmm. they'll be granted refugee status. So, in the case of Malaysia, since Malaysia does not have a proper system, so UNHCR does this. So, UNHCR will grant refugee status. There's some form of recognition by the government if you have UNHCR cards. So, technically, there's a circular that says that the police and authorities cannot arrest UNHCR mm-hmm. card holders. And when I talked to Minister of Home Affairs, for example, so they said that the Majlis Keselamatan Negara or National Security Council, there's an order called Arahan Majlis Keselamatan Negara No. 23, mm-hmm. which actually classifies refugees as parti, perdataan asing tanpa izin or illegal immigrants mm-hmm. with UNHCR cards. So, mm-hmm. they are classified as party UNHCR cardholders. So that's a recognition by the government that these refugees actually exist, but there's no support for them to survive in Malaysia.
1: Yeah, so why hasn't the government been a party to that treaty or haven't ratified it?
0: Okay, well, the government, uh, the ministers and a few ministers actually said that the government would not ratify the Refugee Convention because it gives a burden on the country because if you become a state party to this Refugee Convention, so that means you have to have a local law and that means you have to... You know, provide some support to these refugees, and you are obliged, you know, to give them asylum. So you can't simply turn the boats away, for example, like what some countries are doing, for Mm -hmm. example, in Europe or in Australia. So I guess. There's a fear, you know, that we think that more people will come in. They always say there'll be floodgates of refugees coming mm-hmm. into Malaysia.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. But it seems to me, at least the way the this has developed, that they are increasingly coming, Yeah. right? How substantial is their presence here? How many of them are here?
0: Uh, well, the registered refugees and asylum seekers with UNHCR currently around 150,000. Mm. I think the latest one is 149,200. But those are only registered asylum seekers and refugees, so there are more unregistered asylum seekers and refugees. For example, according to the UNHCR representative in Malaysia, Richard Tau, he said that for Rohingya, at least there are over 40,000 unregistered Rohingya refugees in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. So why do some end up registered and why do some don't? Well, it's because it's difficult actually for them to get registered because it takes a long time to get registered anyway. And the only way to get registered is to come to UNHCR in KL. I mean, UNHCR previously conducted mobile registration where they actually went to different locations, but I don't think they are doing it now And anyway, UNHCR doesn't want to be seen as, you know, simply giving refugee status to migrants. Because Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, the government alleges UNHCR of simply giving out UNHCR cards to these Mm -hmm. refugees. So UNHCR has some fears that, you know, the government would accuse them of doing illegal things by, you know, getting in these economic migrants Mm -hmm. into Malaysia. So what's the conservative estimate for the total amount of refugees, formal and informal? Mm. I think maybe around 200,000 or more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. 200,000.
1: How does that stand out in relation to other countries that take refugees and and stuff like that?
0: Oh, actually, I think in Southeast Asia, Malaysia has the highest number of refugees, Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Thailand has a high number as well. So, and most of them, like around 90% of refugees in Malaysia actually come from Myanmar. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to actually give attention that these refugees from Myanmar are not just only Rohingya. Of course, Rohingya is the biggest group. I mean, they face really terrible persecution Mm -hmm. in their country Mm -hmm. because they're stateless and have no rights. But there are also other ethnic groups from Myanmar. So, we have Chin, we have Kachin, Shan, Mon, Karen, Karani, Arakan, Mm-hmm. and Myanmar Muslims as well so mm-hmm. it's not just rohingya and, and they're all in malaysia yeah they're oh. all in malaysia because i also engage with other you know refugees from other ethnic groups and they are not just muslims mm-hmm. so they are muslims they are christians and they are also buddhists mm-hmm. so this means that you know the problem with myanmar is that Myanmar doesn't know how to treat its citizens very well especially mm-hmm. the ethnic minorities so that's why you know, these people actually fled to Malaysia
1: mm-hmm. Now, I understand why Thailand would have many of them right? because the border is contiguous yeah. but Malaysia seems far off right? Yeah. it seems like quite a risk as well because we're a peninsula geographically yep. so why is Malaysia a common destination for them?
0: I think because something that if they are still in Thailand I mean, Thailand is still close to Myanmar mm-hmm. so psychologically they would need to flee far away from from Myanmar, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. that's why they come to Malaysia. And for Rohingya refugees, for example, some of them, you know, find Malaysia as their destination country instead of a transit country Mm -hmm. because Malaysia is seen as a Muslim-majority country and as an Islamic nation. Mm -hmm. So that's why they feel they want to be here and, you know, want to seek refuge here
1: yeah I want to get into the more academic stuff soon but for more contextual details can you let us know what happens to the average refugee I know it's probably hard to talk about the average refugee it seems like there are different circumstances for all of them but my assumption of what I gather is that they can manage a little better because we have a huge informal economy Mm. right and Mm. so they can get by without necessarily the formalization process so explain to us a bit more about that
0: Oh, well, currently, refugees in Malaysia are not allowed to work. Mm-hmm. They are not allowed to access public education. They can access public health care, but it is very expensive. But for UNHCR holders they will get like 50% discount from the foreigners rate. Mm-hmm. So the foreigners rate is actually very high and very expensive. So while they don't have a proper job and they need to pay for a very expensive health care, so that means it's difficult for them. So, since they are in the informal economy, they are not protected by mm-hmm. the law. So, they can be exploited like you right, know, other migrants.
1: Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, they have no recourse, mm. right? They can't go to the police to report or something because they are already here illegally. Yeah, true. Yeah.
0: Actually, in certain cases, they are protected, but it's not clear under the law, basically. Mm. So, for example, you know, as I said to you earlier, there's a secular that says that the police or the immigration authorities cannot actually arrest them. If they have the card, right? Yeah, if they have the card. If they don't, for most of them. Yeah. Or even in certain cases, you know, if they have cards, they still get stopped and Mm. extorted. I, you know, encountered cases like this before. So, like, you know, I went to the police station and asked about this issue, you know. Mm -hmm, Interesting. So,
1: obviously, we have to mention Myanmar because it's on the headlines a lot. But how about Middle Eastern refugees? How about other places? Paint a picture for us about like where else they come from.
0: Okay. So, actually, refugees in Malaysia also come from other countries like the Middle East, the Syrians, the Palestinians, the Yemenis, the Iraqis, the Afghans. And we also have uh, refugees from Africa like Somalia. Nigeria, Mm -hmm. for example. So, these refugees actually came to Malaysia by plane because, you know, that's the only way to come to Malaysia. They need to fly. So, they could actually be in Malaysia because of the visa on arrival that we have. Mm, For a lot of
1: those countries. Yeah. Ah. So,
0: yeah, that's how they managed to be here. But once their visa expires, they become illegal under the law.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, The term itself is interesting because it can apply even to middle class refugees, right? They don't necessarily have to be destitute and desperate, correct? Yep, yep. Yeah. A lot, some of them in the Middle East, Palestinians, maybe they could be doctors or engineers, right?
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I met like, you know, professional refugees, Mm -hmm. but once they are here, they can't work, so they can't contribute to the economy. Uh, It's a waste of talent, I think.
1: Yeah, and how do they fare better class-wise? Because say if they're English-speaking, they're educated, granted they come here on a visa upon arrival, but they might have better chances of adapting Mm. or, you know, getting acquainted to the culture, local culture.
0: Well, not really, I think. Because I think maybe because there are not many of them here, Mm. so they don't have, like, very big networks, like mm-hmm. other Burmese refugees, like Rohingya, for example, they have a big network, oh, the big, Chin huh? refugees right. as well. So, I mean, if you come here and then you can just ask your friends where to find work and where to live, you know, mm-hmm. they'll survive better than the Middle Eastern refugees. Mm-hmm. Now,
1: before we get into the academic stuff, I know I'm like itching to get there, but I need a bit more raw material. But how long has this process been for Malaysia? I mean, because we can talk about this later in the sense that refugee as a crisis, as a historically specific phenomena, right? Mm. So it has to have the nation state, for example. It has to have the breakdown of the nation state too, right? So a lot of these factors, you know, come together to produce the so-called refugee. Now, when did that happen as a distinct problem for Malaysia?
0: When did it happen?
1: Because as I understand it, Rohingyas have been here for some time, right? Yeah, to have that big network, 70s. for example. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think since 1970s. So, you know, Rohingya have been persecuted for so long. So, since 1970s, actually, some of them came to Malaysia. And it was in 1991 and 1992, actually, there was an influx of Rohingya refugees in Malaysia. And they were granted like six-month work permit by Malaysia. So, Malaysia was welcoming them at that time, but Mm -hmm. it was just only for six months. So, the permits were not renewed. And I think in 1970s as well, we already experienced the Indo-Chinese refugees Mm -hmm. from, you know, the boat people from Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam who came here temporarily. So it was a great effort by UNHCR, Malaysia and also, you know, the third countries like Australia, Canada, US to actually resettle them to their respective countries. Mm -hmm. And this actually continues until today, you know, because the refugee crisis is becoming worse and Mm -hmm. that's why people keep coming here. right? Okay, that's great background for further
1: in-depth questioning, which we'll do in the second part of the show. But well, let's take a break for the first part. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahma alongside Aslam Abdul Jalil, and we are talking about refugees in Malaysia, and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fat Rahma, joined this week by Aslam Abdul Jalil, who is a researcher and advocate for refugee rights, and he's well-versed in the issue, in fact, planning to do his PhD on it soon. And we have him here to talk about the situation refugees in Malaysia and more broadly, how this has been thought about and theorized and the broader implications of the issue towards politics and governance. And uh, in the first part of the show, we talked about the context, broadly speaking, in Malaysia. And now we're going to talk about the discipline in more detail. When did this become an issue of inquiry, right? In the sense that I think it began as basically a result of displaced people due to wars, say, in Afghanistan, and Lebanon, so on and so forth, and Palestinian is another example. But now it's become a real global issue, especially with regards to how Europe is having issues facing it and stuff like that, where it's no longer region-specific, but affecting the globe in general. So give us an account of how this discourse developed.
0: Well, basically, people have been seeking refuge since centuries ago. I think even in Islam, actually, you know, the Prophet and Muslims actually sought refuge from Mecca to Medina, the Hijrah, for example. So that's, you know, that's when at least the Muslims actually sought refuge. And also in Christianity, they have their own version of refuge as well. So it has been happening over the centuries, you know. And I guess, you know, the modern refugee regime actually started when We had, I think in the 1920s, for example, under League of Nations. Mm -hmm. So they had the same problem as well. So they actually had a High Commissioner for Refugees for League of Nations. And, you know, League of Nations actually helped to protect these refugees around the world as well. And then after League of Nations actually, you know, was abolished and we had the United Nations. We also have this United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And we have this 1951 Refugee Convention, which actually defines who refugees are and, you know, what the obligations of the states are Mm -hmm. to protect these refugees. So the convention is, you know, well, tries to cover everything in terms of social economic rights, you know, work rights, education rights, protection and so on and so on. But basically the refugee convention, the nineteen fifty one refugee convention, is very Eurocentric mm-hmm. because initially it was meant to cover, you know, refugees in Europe. So it was only meant for, you know, refugees in Europe. Mm-hmm. But in nineteen sixty seven, for example, they actually had nineteen sixty seven protocol which actually eliminates the geographical limitation of this refugee convention. However, until now, you know, it's that countries related to
1: the war? In Palestine or something like that, or no? Uh,
0: it was well. I'm not sure about the protocol, but I mm. guess because the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees was meant only for until 1953, mm. but because of you know the crisis and the conflict actually prolonged, and that's why they needed to address this issue. Mm-hmm. But certain countries or certain regions in the world actually refused to sign the Refugee Convention because they thought you know the Refugee Convention is not applicable to their region mm-hmm. because you know it's specific, it's Eurocentric, it's not adaptable to their region. And that's why in Africa, for example, the Organization of African Unity actually had their own convention relating to the status of refugees in 1969. Mm-hmm. And they tried to apply 1951 Refugee Convention to the African context. And also we have Latin America Organization of American States, OA. So they have Also, you know, declaration of refugees.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Now, how do you define the refugee in that context? Because it's not just someone moving to another country for better opportunities, right? Is it the same as an asylum seeker or the different nuances to the two terms? Like, what specifies a refugee from, say, other migrants who move because of political circumstances?
0: Oh, it's important to actually, you know, to use the right term because these refugees, they are not economic migrants. So, you know, we have many migrants. I mean, in mm-hmm. fact, I'm also a migrant. Everyone is a migrant. Mm-hmm. So, if you seek better opportunities, economic opportunities, you are economic migrants. I mean, you can go back to where you came from wherever you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's no harm or any you know, persecution that you face. But for refugees, because they are being persecuted because of their religion or, you know, their race. But it's
1: Alvin Tan, for example, yep. a refugee.
0: Yeah, I guess it varies, you know, mm. because first, because Malaysia doesn't have its own system. Mm. So that means we don't have our own interpretation of who refugees. Mm-hmm. In America, you know, if you... Well, I think it fits, you know, American refugee regime. So right, right. maybe not Malaysia. Uh, yep. So you use that term a lot, refugee regime. What does that mean? Well, I'm referring to the... The system, basically, Uh, you know, the convention and how it works. And there are also like three durable solutions for refugees. Firstly, local integration. So that means refugees are meant to integrate with the local society. Voluntary repatriation, if they can go back, if, you know, the situation permits them, but it must be voluntary. And thirdly, resettlement to third countries. So resettlement, you know, to America, Canada. So
1: countries that are... More robust with their gender regime will think like further down the road in terms of like what to do with them and how to basically help them improve their life and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, do we have an indication of whether things are getting worse or better? Because we have all these conventions, we have all these like discourses and terms now about what to do with refugees. But like you said. This has been a problem that's been going on for centuries. And despite the fact that League of Nations tried something, they extended the convention, and now it seems that it's an explosive issue. So Mm. do we have an indication of whether there's progress or regress?
0: It's a difficult question. Oh, that's why I think it's time to introduce... To you about this book. It's called Refuge: Transforming a Broken Refugee System by Alexander Betts and Paul Collier. So they are both like professors at the University of Oxford. So they actually, you know, suggest one thing: we should rethink about our refugee system. So what we have now is we have the convention, but many countries try not to follow it, like in Australia they stop the boats in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. So. What they are suggesting is quite controversial but it's quite interesting. So, they are using the international trade theory that's in economics. So, in the theory, it says that, you know, countries actually should specialise on things that they are good at and then they trade and it creates a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. So, in the refugee context, how it is applied is that, you know, rich countries, in Europe, for example, they are rich and they have so many resources. They have, like, great firms you know and technology that's their advantage so for heaven countries for example the neighboring countries of the conflict countries syria for example mm-hmm. so we have heaven countries like jordan lebanon and turkey so their comparative advantage is that you know they have similar culture similar mm-hmm. religion similar language so that means it'll be easier for them to actually absorb these refugees so what they are suggesting is now you know for rich countries to invest more In these heaven countries so that refugees, you know, can be empowered. And, you know, once, you know, the conflict ends, these refugees can go back to their home countries and they can rebuild their countries. So that's the suggestion. Mm -hmm. And some people think this is what rich countries are doing now because they want to stop people from coming Mm -hmm. to their countries. But I think, you know, it's an interesting idea that we should not simply reject it.
1: Yeah. Can we talk about the state in this equation? Because a lot of it depends on the extent to which a state is inclusive. And given the nation-state framework, a state cannot be all-inclusive. And when governance is weak, when rule of law is weak, you have what we have now in Myanmar. And of course, similarities have been drawn with the case of Yugoslavia, for example, Mm. right? Or Iraq, right? In the sense that the formation of the state that is tied to one identity will exclude many others. To what
0: extent is that crucial at all in this picture? I guess you know now because of nationalism you know people try to not let foreigners refugees migrants whoever they are as long as they're foreigners you know to enter our countries because we want to be sovereign and we we say that you know no one can intrude our borders as simple as that just look in our region australia for example they stop the boats for example and they think you know that undermines their security. I think the same goes with Malaysia and many countries in Europe as well. Because, you know, once foreigners come, you have this fear that the foreigners will actually take your jobs away, will disturb the composition of your people, for example. Let's say in Hungary, the Prime Minister used to say that Hungary uh, is a Christian country Mm -hmm. and these refugees are mostly Muslims and, you know, that would undermine Christianity in the country. So, yeah, many people have this fear.
1: Okay. Is there an end to this problem in the sense where we talk about general development goals, right? To achieve 100% literacy, to achieve accessible healthcare for everyone, to eradicate certain social problems like poverty, blah, blah. Is there discussions about a world without refugees? Or is it like a realistic take that refugees are always going to be there? We just have to make sure that the laws are there to protect them, right? Or are we looking at a possible case scenario in the future where the problem is solved. What's the discourse like there?
0: Well, ideally, we all hope that the crisis will solve, but I don't think it's going to solve very soon. But I think the crisis is always there. It's how we manage it. So, like, in this book, like they also mention about the coordination. So, because, you know, everyone seems not to take any action and, you know, we have so many resources. So, what we need is to... Coordinate and do partnership, for example. Because when I say partnership is needed, it's not just the state. Not states, you know, working with other states. It's, you know, state with the people, with the firms, with the market, with the society. Everyone has to do their part to help to solve this issue. Because, for example, the state may have its own laws, for example. But again, you know, the people must be welcoming these refugees. The firms, for example, must be willing to hire refugees and give work. To yeah. them. And it's very interesting in Canada, for example, I think if I'm mistaken, like over 50% of refugees' arrival in Canada are based on private sponsorships. Isn't that largely a strategic consideration in that a lot of these developed
1: countries have low population increase, that they need expand their population so that they have a tax base and then they can pay taxes and stuff like that, right? I mean, Germany is quite explicit with that. Yep. Their population isn't growing, but the state needs income. Yep. So they need people to work so that they can pay the state. And Malaysia, maybe we don't have that problem because mm. we're breeding more. <laughs> but hmm. what's the real politic angle behind it, you know? Because, yeah, we'd like to have, you know, refugees incorporated and assimilated, but there are costs, you know, considerations of what benefits might
0: there be, you know? Yep. Actually, there are studies, actually, we show that In a few years, of course, we can't really see, you know, the benefits of accepting refugees. But in the long term, we will see the benefits greatly because we are actually investing the human capital. Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah, some are sceptical. You know, they say these are rich and developed countries and that's why they can actually Mm -hmm. absorb refugees. Well, in the case of Malaysia, for example, I mean... I don't want to be too idealistic. Mm-hmm. I want to be realistic. Mm-hmm. So I don't think in any time soon that we are able to absorb refugees as our own citizens. That's not going to happen mm-hmm. anytime soon. What I'm proposing in Malaysia, for example, is that, you know, refugees are allowed to enjoy their rights to work, for example, to access education, to access affordable health care. Because, you know, as you said earlier, we have the sustainable development goals. Mm-hmm. So no one should be left behind in this country. If let's say this is a very simple example, you want to become a developed nation in twenty twenty or twenty fifty, for example. But you know, you can't have a group of people who are uneducated in this country, who simply don't understand you know, the world, who can't read and write. That will actually make your country not developed. So yeah. as simple as that. So a lot of what you've talked about is from the solution end of things, right? How mm. do we
1: solve the problem? But what theories are there for the causes? So you talked about nationalism as one mm. example, but are there connections to, say, imperialism, for example? Right? So right now, people are talking about North Korea. And China and Russia don't want a refugee situation there, you know, especially Mm. the threat of a nuclear war. So what accounts of the causes
0: has the discourse brought up, rather than just thinking about the solutions? I guess it's also related to scarcity, like resources scarcity, for example, or maybe abundance of resources. But again, you know, different people want to you know, basically exploit the resources. Mm -hmm. And there's a study as well in Africa, for example, you know, once you have a resource boom, there'll be more conflicts over there. Mm -hmm. So, because resources are also related to, you know, power. So, I guess in Malaysia, there's a theory that Malaysia actually has a strict immigration rules, but at the same time, people always say that Malaysia is so generous by letting them, you know, to live in Malaysia. So, a scholar actually thought this is called humanitarian exception. So, Malaysia always says that, you know, we allow refugees to live in Malaysia based on humanitarian grounds. So, humanitarian exception means that we actually give some exception to enforce immigration rules on these people. So, even though we have strict immigration rules, but we still allow them to live here. But since we don't have a clear policy, sometimes, you know, they get punished as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, it's still largely like we said earlier, informal, right? Yeah. And,
1: there's a lot of room to manoeuvre informality, but the risks are even greater, yeah. right? On that point, how do you make sense of how the issue of Rohingyans are being politicised right now? Because it was last year or the year before when the boat was stranded and mm. there was a big discussion about whether or not to take them. And suddenly, there was a big rally with Najib Hadi together. I mean,
0: what's your sense
1: of this situation as somebody who's worked on this issue for some time?
0: You know, many people... They say that it was a political act by Najib and by the government. I think it doesn't matter as long as, you know, he's trying to save the people. I think you can't really tell whether someone is sincere to help someone or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you judge by their act. Mm-hmm. So, and I talked to many Rohingya people, they feel very appreciated, mm-hmm. you know, because Najib actually finally stood up for them. I attended the rally anyway. But also, you know, I thought, you know, the government must reflect on itself. Not just the government, but Malaysians as well. Of course, we can condemn from far what's happening in Myanmar. But again, you know, we need to reflect on ourselves. What are we doing to help these refugees who are in Malaysia? Mm-hmm. So in Malaysia, I met many of them who actually remained stateless. So I met like one family, three generations actually, were stateless. Mm-hmm. So the grandma actually came to Malaysia when she was young. And I met the daughter and the granddaughter, and the granddaughter actually got married recently, so mm-hmm. they're going to have another generation mm-hmm. stateless in Malaysia. So, you know, just imagine, you know, of course, it's good we pay attention to Myanmar, but, you know, at the same time, we also need to reflect on ourselves. What are we doing to yeah. help these refugees in our the, own country? Because the problem is now long-term. It's yeah. not just a practical issue, right? Yep. It's
1: a question of values as well as citizens, you know, as what we want our nation to be, how inclusive, so on and so forth. What's your sense of Malaysia's diplomatic position when it comes to Myanmar, for example? It's taken a risk in light of ASEAN's
0: principle of non-intervention lately. What's behind this? I think it's a difficult question to answer because yeah, we have this non-interference policy And actually, Malaysia has been trying to solve this issue in Myanmar for so long, I think. It was done quietly. It was not like until last year that, you know, Prime Mm -hmm. Minister Najib actually simply called it a genocide, which is true. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know whether it's going to work or not because ASEAN is disunited. Because if you notice that in ASEAN, only certain countries actually voiced out their opinions, but independently. For example, Malaysia and Indonesia. So other countries seem to be, I mean, they don't care. Like Brunei, mm. which welcomed Daung San Suu Kyi recently. Mm. You know, and other countries just seem don't care. Mm-hmm. So I guess we need to fix our unity among us and members first. Yeah, it's such a long road ahead, you know. But yeah. anyway, that's all the time we have for now. What
1: do you suggest as reading materials for our listeners who want to know more about the issue?
0: I would suggest you guys to read this book by two Oxford professors called Refuge. Transforming a Broken Refugee System. And as well as, this one is very easy to read. Actually, you don't have to know the situation so much. It's about refugees living in Malaysia, the displaced and forgotten. So it's about the personal stories of refugees from Palestine. It's by Raudah Muhammad Yunus and Muhammad Mahmudul Hassan. Okay. So, it's about refugees from Somalia, from Palestine, and other countries living in Malaysia. So, yeah, they have personal stories.
1: Great. So, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter?
0: Sorry, I'm not on Twitter. Okay, so but you're on Facebook, on Facebook, right? Facebook, yeah.
1: Okay, they can look you up. Or they can email the show, bfmnightschool.gmail.com, or look us up on Facebook to start BFM Night School on the search space. And download our app, the Apple App Store and Google Play. All right, thanks a lot, Aslam. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. And hopefully we can have you on again to talk about other things oh, sure. uh, related to the issue. And all the best for your PhD endeavors. Thanks. <laughs> so I'm Ahmad Rahmat. And this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.